Today our passage is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. This is the word of the Lord. I I would argue, brothers and sisters, that, that there are few experiences more painful in this life than losing a loved one. I know some of you have experienced that even this this year, in the last couple years. There is a a crushing sense of finality. There's a flood of memories whose very sweetness makes the moment of death all the more bitter. Whether you've said it or not, you hear in your head that this can't be happening. This is happening. Why, Lord, did it have to happen this way? I, I remember the, the, the numbness and the pain that filled my heart when my one-year-old niece died. I, I remember the confusion and sorrow that, that just ricocheted around my mind when, when a 33-year-old, two years older than him now, 33-year-old pastor friend of mine, a classmate of mine, a Dan Gaveda from Wales, working out at the Y, collapsed dead from a brain aneurysm. Perfect health. Four little kids. You, you kind of stop you know, when you hear things like that. Because we think that we're captain of our fate. We think that we're master of our souls. We have tomorrow all planned out. At least some of you type A people do. And then death comes in and brings the whole illusion crashing to the ground. We, we realize our lives are fragile. We realize our lives are mortal. We, we remember and recognize in a new way there's a reason the prophet declares all flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. Grief in the face of death, 
the kind I've been speaking about, isn't just inevitable. It's actually good. Why? Because this isn't the way things were meant to be. Death is a monstrous intrusion. It's it's a ravaging corruption. It's terribly familiar, but it is not normal. Why? Because it was not originally part of the exceedingly good world that God created. It came into the world because of our sin. And it didn't take long, mind you, for the first man and woman to turn away from God. In their pride, they thought, what? I can do just fine without God. And so they they opened a door they thought would lead to the heights of joy and they found themselves quivering in the clutches of death. And so it goes for all who follow them. Romans 5 verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. God sees that, friends. God knows that. And God is grieved by that. When when Mary fell at Jesus' feet in in John 11, undone, Mary was, by the death of her brother Lazarus, Jesus was, what do we learn? Deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And when Mary and her family beckoned him to come and see Lazarus' tomb, he couldn't even get all the way there before he broke down and wept. Sobs shaking his body. That, that, that's not, he shed a token tear. <laughs> he wept. The one who spoke the stars into being wept. The the one before whom every knee will bow wept. The one who knows in a way that you and I fight to trust and believe, right? That in the end, all will be well. He wept. We're not alone in our grief. And if you've paid attention to what's going on in this section of 1 Thessalonians, you will also know that the Thessalonians were grieving. Uh, They were the church to whom the Apostle Paul wrote this letter, and they were grieving. And apparently one or more of their number had died. And their spiritual fathers, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, were concerned. Mind you, not concerned they were grieving. (laughs) They were concerned because... They saw the Thessalonians grieving, look at verse 13, as those who have no hope. If you think grief is bad or sorrow is always an expression of unbelief, I invite you to take up your descent with the Savior who wept. (laughs) Grief is not bad, but grieving, as others do, who have no hope is. Because not all grief is the same. Think about this. There is a kind of grief that is void of hope, and there's a kind of grief that is full of hope. 
And Paul wrote these words at the very end of chapter 4 to inform the Thessalonians and in turn to inform you and me so that when we face the grief of death, when we see fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in Christ, die, that we will know how to grieve with hope. In other words, merely understanding the end times wasn't Paul's goal here. Hope in the midst of sorrow is his goal here, right? Spiritual encouragement remains the divinely intended effect. Look at verse 18. What does Paul say? His conclusion for the whole thing, we should start here. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. That's the point. That's the goal. And if you heard this passage read and thought, oh, great. We're going to get involved in the details of the end times. Try again. not why Paul wrote this. He wrote this to encourage our souls as we see and feel the grief of a fellow Christian meeting the wave of death. And Paul argues here in a concise but very convincing way that that experiencing encouragement in the midst of death has everything to do with what you believe about Jesus. Okay, simply put, When a believer dies, we should grieve with hope because Jesus' story is our story. That's what he's getting at here. Because he rose, we too will rise. So whether we die before he returns or not, his death and resurrection guarantees our bodily resurrection, Christian, and eternal life in the all-satisfying presence of God. That's the blessed hope of every Christian. So let's pay attention here as Paul addresses a couple things, which I'm going to organize this way, the foundation, the substance, and the reward of our hope. But remember the big idea. When a believer dies, we should grieve with hope, knowing Jesus' story is our story. Point number one, the work of Christ is the foundation of our hope. Looking at verses 13 and 14. Look at verse 14 with me. Paul wants to give the Thessalonians hope in the midst of grief. But notice, he doesn't start by talking about them or their grief or the person that's died and their life. Where does he start? He starts by talking about Jesus. Notice that. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, you can just blow through those words easily once you've sat through a couple hundred sermons. Don't do that. (laughs) Don't do that. Why? Because the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the key, friend, to understanding everything God is doing in the world today and everything God will do in the world tomorrow. It's the key because it's in Jesus and Jesus alone that all the redemptive purposes of God are revealed and come to pass. Hebrews 1 verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke, revealed his plans and purposes to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us, he has revealed his plans and purposes by his son. So, What do we need to see about Jesus, about the one through whom God is speaking today in verse 14? What do we need to see? 
We need to be informed and aware that what God inaugurated in the life of his son will be consummated in the life of his people. Let's unpack that, okay? If, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, maybe a better way to say this is, his story will be your story. So if you want to understand what's going to happen to you when you die, here's the, the conclusion of that, you need to understand and pay attention to what happened to Jesus when he died. His story is your story. What God inaugurated in the life of his son will be consummated in the life of his people. Because make no mistake, Jesus really died. His death wasn't a mirage. His death wasn't an illusion. I mean, if the Romans knew how to do anything well, you know what they were really good at? Killing people. He really died. But, but why did Jesus die? Ultimately, it wasn't the Jews or the Romans who killed him. It was God who killed him. God the Son died because God the Father put him to death. As he hung on the cross, he bore in his body and soul the cumulative weight of the sin of the world, the very sin that brought death into the world in the first place. Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Okay, Jesus died, friend, so that all who cry out to him for the forgiveness of their sins could discover with tears of joy that his death was sufficient to atone for all your guilt and all your sin and all your disobedience and all your unrighteousness and all the sins you remember to confess and all the sins you forget to confess. All of that, Jesus paid. How do we know that? How do you know that's not just what an excitable preacher says? Well, you know that because Jesus didn't stay dead. We've been singing about that this morning. That's how you know that. He didn't remain dead. Joseph of Arimathea, a real guy in a real place like you and me, took his body, wrapped it in a linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb. And the Jews, by the way, were so concerned that his followers would steal his body away and claim, hey, look, Jesus got resurrected, that they went to the Romans and convinced them to seal the tomb and to set a guard to keep it secure. And three days later, two women, both followers of Jesus, went to see the tomb. And this is what happened next. Matthew 28, 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the woman, do not be afraid for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. You won't find him here. Because he's risen, as he said. Notice, notice the power of God fulfilling the word of God. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. And there you will see him. 
And what does the Apostle Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 15? That Jesus soon appeared not just to Peter and to the disciples, but also to more than 500 brothers at one time. And then what does Paul add? What does he say? Most of whom are still alive. Do you know in Jewish law, a matter was confirmed, verified, by the testimony of two or three witnesses. What did Jesus dial up? Clearly, he wasn't interested in meeting the minimum standard. Because his resurrection was no more an illusion than his death. It was a reality confirmed by a multitude of eyewitnesses. So, so what does the reality of the resurrection prove then, friend? Well, it proves, as, as Richard Sibbs so wonderfully said, it proves that there is more righteousness in Christ than there is sin in us. That's what it proves. That the payment Jesus made didn't just meet the debt we owed. It exceeded the debt we owed. And so the same justice that compelled God to crush his son now compelled God to raise him up. Think about that. The justice of God compelled him to raise him up. And here's where the good news of the gospel gets absolutely amazing. Because if you die trusting Jesus and the work he did on the cross, to save you from the condemnation you deserve, then the Lord promises that he will raise you up too. Not because you are worthy, but because Jesus is worthy and the Spirit has united you to the Son through faith in the Son so that the eternal life that is right now his and will always be his will most certainly always be yours. So fearful saint, trembling in the shadow of death, Shaken by the futility of your life. Hear this, brothers and sisters. Your God will not leave you in the grave. Through Jesus, look at verse 14. God will bring you with him. He doesn't just say through Jesus, everything's going to be fine, so shut up and start obeying. No. No, through Jesus, God will bring you with Jesus. He will bring you into the glory of his presence. He'll, he'll bring you home to heaven. Your physical death is no more the final word over your life than Jesus' death was over his life. John 14, verse 19. Because I live, Jesus says, you also will live. And if you're still looking at verse 14, what I've just said is the entire force of those two words in the middle, even so... Even so, what is that? There's a parallel, there's a connection. Even so, the same things that happen to Christ will happen to all who are in Christ. Just as it happened here, even so, it will happen here. Which is why Paul describes Christians who have died as those who have fallen asleep. Why does he do that? Because in the same way that Jesus' death, physical death, was temporary, and our physical sleep is temporary, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, your physical death too is temporary. And so we need not fear death, as painful as it is, because it won't have the final word. It wasn't the final word for Jesus. It won't be the final word for all who cling to him by faith. So what good is all that? Well, 
among other applications, <laughs> there are people out there whose lives seem to go exactly according to plan. You know what I'm talking about? Maybe in your mind, it's somebody else in this room. Good job, good marriage, good kids. Side note, one of the privileges of being a pastor is you quickly find out that that's just a joke. (laughs) We've all got issues. But, you know, we can look at that, right? Maybe even think, I'm so close. I'm so close. I've got like two out of three. But then from pretty much all of us at some point, okay, guaranteed for all of us, at some point, something will happen in your life. Some suffering will come your way that reminds you of just how futile your life is. So your doctor says you have dementia. Or your spouse says, I'm done. Or the friend you thought would always be there betrays you, and, and you run smack into the wall of your own helplessness and mortality. And it, and it feels like, it feels like, death is, is reaching out to you from the grave. And it, and it has its hands on you. And it's just pulling you down and down and down into a yawning pit of mental and physical darkness. You see no end in sight and you wonder if life is still worth living. And what Paul is saying to you, Christian, in verse 14, is that even in that darkness, there is hope for you in Christ. Because Jesus' story will be your story. You will be delivered. You will be vindicated. You will make it home to heaven. You you may enter the sleep of death in great sorrow. But you will wake up afterward to be with the Lord. Death will not have the final word because Jesus died and rose again. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Point one, where we have to start, the work of Christ is the foundation of our hope. Apart from his story, we have no hope for our story. Point two, look at verse 15. The resurrection of the body think about this, is the substance of our hope. So if the work of Christ is the foundation, it's what it's all built on and doesn't exist without, what what is the substance? What, What is the hope that Paul is saying, listen, I don't want you to grieve as others do who have no hope. Okay, Paul, I'm grieving. I could use some hope. Where do I look? Where's the hope? Well, the way Paul compares the physical death of a Christian to falling asleep, which I encourage none of you to do in a sermon. <laughs> Had to say that. Raises a lot of questions. At least it does in my mind. Starting with exactly what happens to us when we die. Okay? D- does the Father immediately bring us with Jesus or do we have to wait? And what does the timing of Jesus' return have to do with all this? Well, thankfully, God doesn't leave us in the dark. (laughs) He doesn't leave us in the dark. As I prayed earlier, he doesn't answer every question we have about the future. He does tell us everything we need to know in order to live faithfully in the present in light of the future. Which requires trusting God with what he's revealed and not revealed. Does it not? 
And the, and the church has historically spoken of all the Bible says about what happens when we die and what will happen when Christ returns as the doctrine, you ready for this? Of eschatology. Eschatology. That's the longest word I'll use in this sermon. But you can hear it out there, so I want to mention, okay? When you hear somebody talking about eschatology, it simply means the study of last things. What happens when we die? What happens when Jesus returns? Well, in his book, The Future of Everything, uh, by William Bokestein, which I highly recommend, we have it in the bookshop, he identifies a couple pitfalls that I think we need to avoid when it comes to end times issues as we wade into verses 15 to 17 here, okay? First, we must avoid speculative eschatology, okay? We are speculating when we try to make scripture answer questions it's not trying to answer. That's a problem. We need to read God's word on God's terms in God's categories, Second, we should avoid argumentative eschatology. (laughs) Mm. Amen. Why? Because faithful, God-fearing Christians, did you hear that? Faithful, God-fearing Christians have disagreed over the details and will continue to disagree over the details. So it is not wrong to hold and defend a particular view. It is wrong to question the spiritual integrity of a Christian who holds a different view or to have an attitude of superiority toward them. Third, we should avoid avoiding eschatology. (laughs) That was my favorite. Because these verses, 15 to 17, have have sparked no lack of controversy among Christians over the centuries, which leaves some to to do what I will call the not-so-subtle play for the moral high ground. And it sounds like this. Who knows what the Bible actually says? I'm just going to leave all that up to God and, and focus on the here and now. Really? Well there are two big problems with that, okay? One, what Paul says in verses 15 to 17 that we're about to walk through isn't intended to confuse us, friends. Remember verse 18, therefore, confuse one another with these words. No, what? Encourage one another with these words, okay? Usually the confusion comes when we try to make scripture say more than God intends for it to say. Have I said that enough times this morning? Second, My second problem with that, moral high ground, understanding what will happen in the future is one of the main ways God is busy right now strengthening you to trust and obey him in the present. And if you say, you know what, I don't need that. I know you talked about that, but people disagree, so uh uh-uh, uh-uh, go away. You are cutting yourself off from the power of God. Don't do that. The Thessalonians were grieving in the present, right? Worried that Christians who die before Jesus returns are going to miss out on the blessings of his second coming in the future. And so Paul immediately corrects that notion in verse 15. Look there. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left... Not as in left behind series, 
but as in still living on earth until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Translation, believers who have died before Jesus returns will enjoy the exact same spiritual blessings as believers who are alive when Jesus returns. That's what he's saying. Well, how is that going to happen? How's that going to go down? They're dead. Verse 16, for the Lord himself speaking of Jesus, will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, let's clear up a couple things here, okay? First, when a believer dies, their soul or their spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord in heaven. How do we know that? Well, scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5.8, where Paul says to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Or think about what Jesus said to the thief crucified next to him in Luke 23. In future eons, you will be with me in paradise. No, today you will be with me in paradise, right? So those who have fallen asleep as believers, those who have died, don't enter some sort of spiritual limbo state where you're just kind of in transport for a few millennia. No, no, they enjoy immediate spiritual fellowship with Jesus in heaven, immediately. But we have to wait, however, for the second coming of Christ to be reunited with a resurrection body. That's the distinction. So when Jesus comes back, Paul's saying, think about this, with the very same voice that spoke life into Adam and thundered on Mount Sinai, and whispered to Elijah, and cried in a manger, and taught his disciples, and and calmed the storm, and healed the sick. The very same voice that speaks to us through the written word of God today. That voice, Jesus' voice, will summon the physical bodies of believers who have died from the dust of death, raising them to life, and vindicating the power and authority of God the Father. That's what Paul's saying. Because on that day, the resurrected bodies of those who have died in Christ, who died before he returned, will be raised and physically recognizable. Just like Jesus' body was physically recognizable. But this is the amazing part. They will no longer be subject to decay and sin and aging and death. Amen. (laughs) Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, Paul says, what is sown, dies, is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. Anybody feeling weak in their physical body right now? Yeah, it is raised in power. And the same will be true, friend, of the physical bodies of those who are alive When Jesus returns, though they haven't physically died, they too will receive a resurrection body that is imperishable and immortal. First Corinthians 15, 51, we shall not all sleep. What's Paul saying? That some of you will have amnesia? No, we will not all die, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 
at the last trumpet, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. And this mortal body must put on immortality. Then, then we all, look back at verse 17, 1 Thessalonians 4, will be caught up together, where? In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, let's make several really important comments about that verse. Okay? I, I want you to notice several things about what Paul's saying here. Look at verse 17. First, notice there's nothing secretive or hidden about the resurrection of those who have died in Christ. It's visible. It's visible in the sense that it happens after the Lord himself descends from heaven. Well, what does Jesus tell us about that moment in the Gospel of Matthew? 24 verse 27. As the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Visible. Not hidden. And besides, back in verse 16, what do you think a cry of command, the voice of an archangel, and the sound of a trumpet have in common? They're loud! Right? Archangels don't whisper. Cries of command aren't silent. Trumpets aren't quiet. It's visible. It's loud. Nothing secretive or hidden going on here. Second, notice Paul's concern, this is so important, is more relational than geographical. More relational than geographical. So throughout the Old Testament, clouds aren't just a scientific phenomenon. They're a symbol. They're a symbol of the presence and glory of God. So being caught up together in the clouds with every other believer to meet the Lord isn't Paul's way of saying, we're all going to get to see Jesus, but it isn't going down till we hit 20,000 feet. That's not what Paul's saying, okay? Meeting the Lord in the air is a powerfully symbolic way of saying the one whose physical body is right now in heaven will be united with those whose physical bodies are now on earth. What is the air? It's the space between heaven and earth. It doesn't matter whether you die before Jesus comes back or are alive when he returns. Christian, you will receive a resurrected body and in that perfect body, you will meet the Lord. Why is that comforting? How does that fit in with verse 18? Well, it reminds us, please hear this, that the redeeming power of God isn't going to stop working until every bodily vestige of sin and sorrow is completely gone. You know, so much of the futility and the brokenness that we experience in this world is physical. It's material. It's not just in your head. You, you can see it in your lab reports. And in response, friend, God doesn't say, hey, congrats. Because of Jesus, you'll eventually get to enjoy spiritual fellowship with me in heaven as a gloriously disembodied soul. Isn't it good to know we're just done with all that nasty physical stuff? 
You know who talked like that? The Greeks. That was their whole view of the world. Physical, inferior, spiritual, superior. Not so with the Lord. Why? Because he created your body. It didn't evolve. It's not an accident. He built it. He fashioned it. He created it very good. And he hasn't abandoned or forgotten what God says is very good. So the same redemptive power that is presently at work right now in your soul, Christian, making you more like Jesus in a physical sense, will one day do its work in your physical body, making you more like Jesus, just like Jesus, in a very physical sense. What is now true spiritually will then be true physically. That's what Paul's saying. And and the bodily nature of our resurrection reminds us, listen, that our bodies could not be more important to the Lord. They're not disposable. They're not yours to use however you desire. They are a theater for the saving power of Jesus Christ. No less than your soul. And though she's not here this morning, my wife, Eliza, loves to remind me that from age 21 onward, everything begins to decay. And so every time I I give her the slightest indication of a a bodily ailment or a problem, she looks at me and smiles and says, you're getting older. (laughs) And my preference to date is just willful ignorance. I don't care about the facts. I don't care about the data. I just deny, deny, deny. But, you know, then I, I visit an aging church member in the hospital. Or I sit with a young brother or sister in Christ who has a chronic physical illness. And so they will not live out half their days. Or I think about the, the deaths I mentioned earlier. Or I pick up the phone and one of you says, we lost the baby. And my first thought is, My second thought is, praise God for the resurrection. And so I find myself praying like this, which I think is the intended effect of this passage. Lord, thank you that one day all of this will be made new. Thank you that the grave isn't the end. Not just for our souls, but but for our bodies. Thank you that what you created is, is good. Lord, right now we are languishing under the pain of a physical curse of sin. It hurts. It really hurts. But thank you, Lord, that where the physical works and effects of sin abound, the physical works and effects of grace will abound all the more. Thank you for the comfort of knowing that that all that is physically wrong with me right now will one day be made physically right. Hear that fearful Christian. The resurrection of the body is the substance of our hope. It's the substance. God cares about your body. He will redeem it. Let's end with this. The presence of God is the unspeakable reward of our hope. The reward of our hope. 
And as you look at that, I, I could just, we, we could just go on and on adding adjectives before the reward. <laughs> I, I can't imagine sharing in the, the joy and the glory of the resurrection of the body. I, I love all of you who work in the medical field. I grew up in a medical family, but I'm longing for the day when you're fired. <laughs> I'm longing for the resurrection of the body. That, that, that is going to be incredible. But you know, there's an even greater joy than that. There's an even greater delight, greater reward, and that is the reward of spending all our days in the presence of the Lord. Because it is exceedingly good to know the comfort of the indwelling Holy Spirit, God with us. It is exceedingly good to live in community with other Christians, right? Experiencing as we gather together physically, the presence of God in a uniquely powerful way when we come together to worship and pray. It, it is exceedingly good to know the, that no matter what kind of suffering we encounter in this life, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted, right? Jesus hasn't left us on our own. He's, he's, he's with us always. He's near. That's exceedingly good, friends. But there is something even better. And it's called seeing Jesus face to face. Look back at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That, brothers and sisters, is one of the strongest spiritual encouragements you can ever share with a fellow Christian who is walking through the valley of the shadow of death. How how does our story begin? Well, the story of our salvation begins in Genesis 3. So the cool of evening is at hand and and the setting sun soon gives way to the darkness of sin and death. But how does the story of our redemption end? It ends in Revelation 22 where the Lord himself once again walks among us. Only this time we see his face at the beginning of an eternal dawn of life with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Revelation 22, 4. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Think about the face we're going to see. Think about the Lord with whom you will always be. There is no one more beautiful than him, Christian. There's no one more infinitely holy and lovely, and, and glorious, and, and mighty. So many pleasures in this life. Pleasures you're going to enjoy on Labor Day weekend. I hope you have a great time on Labor Day weekend. But you know what all those pleasures are going to do? They're going to flow, and they're going to ebb. The game will start. The game will be over. The night out will begin. The night out will end. You know what pleasure, Christian, is never going to flow or ebb in heaven? It's being with the Lord. A pleasure greater and and infinitely more glorious and satisfying than anything we could know on this earth. Why? Because you were made to know him. You were made to be with him. And in Psalm 17, King David 
after kind of reviewing all the suffering of this life and, and sensing the distress in his soul over the prosperity of the wicked, he turns his eyes to his eternal he- inheritance in heaven. And he says this in verse 15, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. But I want to challenge you with something here, King's wife. I want to challenge you because I've observed in my own heart that finding encouragement in Paul's words in verse 17, so we will always be with the Lord, only brings hope in the midst of grief if Jesus is your treasure. Why do I say that? If you love nothing and no one more than him, then there will be nothing better in your mind than always being with him, right? But if you love something or someone more than him, then always being with him will sound fine on Sunday morning, but it will be strangely dissatisfying in the rest of your week. So I urge you to test your affections with a simple question. If you could have eternal life, but not Jesus, would you be satisfied? If you could have all the beauty and resurrection body and all that, heaven, but no Jesus, would you be content? It's those who fight the hardest to make Jesus their treasure in this life that enjoy the greatest hope in the midst of grief because they have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They, they live, that kind of Christian lives with a deep and abiding confidence that Psalm 8410 isn't a joke for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And how do you know that? And how can you say that? Because right now in the midst of your sorrow, while we are waiting for the fullness of our joy, we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And that he's near to the brokenhearted. The presence of God himself is the ultimate reward of our hope. I started out by recognizing that we are all too familiar with death. And it's through Jesus, friend, that God is eager to give us hope in the midst of our grief. It's not a pipe dream. It's it's not a spiritual fantasy. It's not a wouldn't it be great if that was true? Maybe I'll try to bank on it kind of hope. It's a sure hope. It's a certain hope. It's, it's a result of, of looking to Jesus and focusing on the promises he has made about the future to all who choose to trust and obey him. So, should you grieve when a loved one passes away? Yes. Yes. But if they are a believer, grieve with hope, knowing Jesus' story is our story. And even if your loved one is not a Christian, because some of you have been thinking about that as I have been preaching today. We still do not grieve as those who have no hope. Why? Because even amidst the pain of watching that loved one refuse the consolations of Christ, this you know. One day, you will be with the Lord. And in that, you can know, friend, that he will wipe away every tear from your eye and that on that day, 
you will find and discover in a way you have never known before that Jesus does all things well. The work of Christ is the foundation of your hope. The resurrection of the body is the substance of our hope. The presence of the Lord is the reward of our hope. So I urge you, friend, I urge you in the midst of a world of grief and sorrow, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus because he will never disappoint you. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that in Christ, you have given us the greatest hope imaginable. And we pray as we grieve that we would not grieve as those who have no hope, especially, particularly, as you've addressed in this passage, the death of a fellow Christian. Lord, we pray that the grief and sorrow we feel over the thought of someone we love dying apart from you would compel us as it compelled Siomara to be faithful to speak, to be faithful to plant, to be faithful to water, but then give us the courage and humility to trust you to bring the growth. And we pray, Lord, that when a loved one who is a believer dies, when our spouse dies, when our parents die, when our children die, when we run smack into that wall of mortality and death, that we would sense and know in that moment through the abiding authority of your word, a comfort in Christ, knowing his story is our story. And we pray that on all the days where we doubt that or question that or find ourselves thinking if we're honest, for real, for real, that your Holy Spirit would use your word and the encouragement of our fellow believers to strengthen our faith and teach us to say with a great cloud of witnesses, come Lord Jesus. Amen.